0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast in Ukrainian Studies. I'm your host, John Shetichka. Joining me today is Dr. Catherine Warner, who is Professor of History, Anthropology, and Religious Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. Dr. Warner is the author, of, author or editor of six books, and she is a leading authority on the study of religion in Ukraine. Today, we will chat about her new book, which is titled Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine. The book was published in 2022 by Cornell University Press. Kathy, thanks so much for joining me on the New Books Network podcast today.
1: And thanks for the invitation to be here, John. It's a pleasure.
0: So I I want to get right into this um, because this book is so rich in, in, in detail and in substance. But one of the aspects of the book that really resonated with me um, was your focus on religion and everyday life in Ukraine. Uh, And it's something that you you, you refer to regularly as everyday religiosity in the book. And the study of the everyday and the social, which is a direction I see many books in Ukrainian studies going right now, um, and one that I'm a big fan of. You know, I'm thinking of Greta Euling's new book on everyday war in the Donbass. I think of Emily Channel Justice's recent monograph on self-organization and the Maidan. Um, and even Alessia Hromechuk's Death of a Soldier concerning the everyday residences of war and civilian life. Um, And these studies of the everyday seem to have found prominence among scholars working on Ukrainian topics. And your book adds what I think is a really important dimension to all of this in the religious sense. So I just want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about what drew you to look at the practices of everyday religiosity in Ukraine, and why you think it's so important for understanding things like faith, belief, politics, and just general everyday life?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. And it really stems from the fact that all the topic of this book, and really every book I've ever uh, worked on, has to do with what I've seen and experienced on the ground in Ukraine. And so I think I would state, especially for me during the Maidan, the tremendous role that uh, religion and religious actors played during the Maidan, whether you're talking about clergy forming a human chain to stand between the special forces and the protesters on the Maidan, the um, quick Uh, opening of Mikhailovsky Sabor, or St. Michael's Cathedral, and the use of that, um, as well as the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, which are all in close proximity to the Maidan, uh, for protesters, not just the fact that those religious organizations opened up, but that people actually went there, as well as things like um, creating um, various sort of prayer uh, events that were led by clergy from a whole variety of different denominations. So just the, the prominence and the vast participation of people in so many of those events that contrasts really sharply with uh, a great many scholars that always thought that religion was nominal. That's the word that was often used, that you know, Ukrainians were nominally Orthodox or that they were, you know, nominally religious. And so the Maidan was just for me yet another glaring example. Example of um, they're not really nominally religious, but they're just religious in a different kind of way. Um, It doesn't make it any less meaningful, or in a moment of crisis, be it the Maidan or be it the current war, um, the hybrid war, and then now the the current full full scale war, during a moment of crisis, then religion takes on um, outsized importance. And that's because it actually is present in these kinds of everyday kind of ways, and that makes it um, both a meaningful response as well as sometimes an effective political tool.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, I, I think your book it's, it, There's, I mean, every chapter is is a great sort of study of these everyday. Practices, and of course, you have one on the Maidan, which you know. I hope we can talk about a little bit more because, to me, that chapter really was integral for understanding the way that politics and religion become fused and are not separate. Um, you know, and you and you mentioned St. Michael's, and you you write about these sort of protesters that are then shielded from the monks, and how this is so important. Um, and but before we talk about s- some of these sort of everyday um, aspects that you write about. Uh, I want to just return briefly to sort of the the start of your book when you talk about the importance of the creation of the independent Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And the reason I want to do this is I think some of our listeners could benefit from understanding this very complex um, religious order that's, you know, even for those of us who study Ukraine professionally, have sometimes a difficult time sort of keeping track of. So I, I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of the history and order of the way that these churches have functioned and then have come into being because the the creation of this independent Orthodox Church of Ukraine, and for those of you listening, don't worry, there's a great page of abbreviations for all the churches, which is very helpful to reference. Um, This sort of was integral for a number of reasons, one of which was it posed a threat to sort of longstanding Russian influence, um, but it also caused some ruptures among other churches. So if you wouldn't mind, could you just talk a little bit about these churches and the way that they're present in Ukraine?
1: Sure. Um, if you look, just I'll just even take like the, the 20th century up until the present, but if you look at really key pivotal moments of change, be it then the revolution in 1917, um, uh, 1991 with the collapse of the USSR, uh, 2014 with the hybrid war beginning, um, at each of these really pivotal moments, there has been a concerted effort and efforts in between, I might add, to try and create an independent Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Church to serve the Ukrainian people, and that's primarily because, you know, Orthodoxy, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, largely follows a, uh, a one nation, one people kind of a model. And this is, of course, why we have the, you know, Romanian Orthodox Church, Bulgarian Orthodox Church, and so on. And so there have there have been attempts over the years to create a an independent. Orthodox Church that was that that serves Ukrainians, um, it, the difference being is that the um, w- almost thirty years of an independent state combined with the. Um, the dynamics ratcheting up with the hybrid war and the, the loss of Crimea, and uh, fears of of other forms of violence, uh, which of course came to fruition in 2022. The idea was um, to, given that Ukraine was of course outmanned out weaponed uh, outweaponed by Russian forces to try to use uh, everything that they could to strengthen Ukrainian sovereignty, to strengthen the Ukrainian nation, and to try to, you know, secure a place for both Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian state going forward. And so, of course, in this way, then, we those previous attempts to create Ukrainian Orthodox Churches, one, uh, the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church, after the revolution, and then the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Church of the of the Kiev Patriarchate after 1991, they merged together to, uh, or largely, mostly, uh, most of them did, not all, uh, to form then the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, um, and that was then meant to, um, as one says in Ukraine, weaponize and even securitize religion. In other words, to use religion as yet another um, uh, means by which to uh, fortify the Ukrainian state and strengthen uh, the Ukrainian nation.
0: yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, uh, th- you know it gives it great context, you know, not only for me but I think for a lot of people, because we've sort of seen these discussions unfolding for a long time, as you said. and for those of us who study history even longer, But it's become really prominent uh, in the past several years, and it's caused these sort of major ruptures, which sort of brings me to the next point, then, because your book is not really it is about these institutions, but it's not about these formal institutions. And I forget the line exactly, but you have a great line in your book of, you know, I was was searching for these religious practices and the church was not the best place to find them. Um, And I mean, and for those also listening, just the prose in this book is fantastic. And there are so many great one liners that I've, I've circled and I'm like, I'm going to put this in my own writing. But really, your book is concerned with those that are called or deemed just Orthodox, right? Or um, what we call in Ukrainian prostopravoslavni. And you note in the book that this term refers to those Ukrainians who, I, I guess you would, to use your words, decline to express allegiance to a particular patriarchal church and instead opt to remain committed to their faith, right? It's not that they're not religious. It's just that they're committed to their faith. Um, more in a sense of place than denomination, as you say. Um, and it's not, it's not really tied to these institutions. And then the five chapters in your book examine how those who identify as just Orthodox carry out their everyday religious practices in various ways. And we can get into this in a few minutes. Um, I'm wondering if you could say more about the historical involvement of just Orthodox and why these people who identify as such prefer not to have uh, an institutional affiliation.
1: I think um, there's a a pronounced effort that has been sustained for quite some time in Ukraine to try to depoliticize religion and to try to have it not be instrumentalized um, by the state. Uh, Of course, they look to uh, what happens to the Russian Orthodox Church, and that is not necessarily a a positive model to follow. Um, And so I think that that situation is very different historically for religious institutions in Ukraine that traditionally have been uh, much more in opposition to the state. One can think of, of course, the Ukrainian Autocephalous orthodox church, and of course, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. So there's different kinds of uh, relationships to the state. But irregardless, uh, there is a certain politicization of religion. And I think part of um, the motivation for people to call themselves prosto Pravoslavny or just Orthodox, is to uh, distance uh, the meaning of uh, a certain confessional tradition. And here, I would say it's it, it, it so moves beyond religion per se. You know, in 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 North America or in Western Europe, we tend to think of religion in this very institutionalized sense, you know, going to a particular uh, uh, religious uh, church, let's say, on Sunday morning. But the whole point that I was trying to make is that you're right, people um stay connected to orthodoxy and continue to feel themselves orthodox sometimes and 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 really to a significant extent even sometimes entirely independent of religion so you're right in researching this book i did not spend a lot of time in church per se and i rarely spoke of religion per se it's in looking at what people do and what they say they care about—that you see that there is a certain kind of allegiance to being orthodox, but almost in a, a, con, a on, on two levels—one either a, a confessional. Uh, Um, Level That is to say, people recognize the import of orthodoxy in terms of aesthetic styles and historical experience and architectural styles. So there's, and that that is meaningful. And so they take that on as some kind of an identity, which is why, you know, you hear of many people, not just Lukashenko, Belarusian president Lukashenko calling himself an orthodox atheist, right? There are many, many people like that who feel themselves to be orthodox, but it's entirely independent of religion. religion. And that then compounds with many people who feel they might feel attached to a particular church building, but that uh, usually has much more to do with uh, some kind of personal connection. Um, You know, maybe uh, they like the aesthetics of that particular church, or maybe they have a family connection there. So in other words, the connections to institutionalized forms of religion tend to be, um, either on this very, very localized level or the kinds of religious practices that I look at in this, in this book that have much more to do with, um, visiting, uh, prayed over places, or um, forms of healing that draw on spirituality and other kinds of um, concepts that draw on, 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 on religious sentiments, those are really uh, connect with institutionalized religion to the extent that it draws on a certain confessional tradition. But um, it's precisely because they're not uh, within an institution that people gravitate towards them. And one of the reasons why they gravitate towards them is because that allows them to sort of innovate and shape those practices uh, to their own needs and to their own likes and desires. And, And that's, of course, then what keeps those forms of religious practice meaningful. And that's what keeps an allegiance to uh, a confessional tradition um, uh, vibrant and that I think is one of the reasons why you know at certain moments for example when uh, the former Ukrainian president Petro poroshenko made such a pronounced effort to achieve a tomos and 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 deliver an independent uh, Orthodox Church of Ukraine why? Everybody knew about that and most people followed that whole development and most people um, uh, supported that effort even if they never had any intention to go to that church. They never had any intention to actually join um, a community per se. And so you find people, uh, I was very motivated by the puzzle of trying to unpack why some people seem to care so deeply about things orthodox and orthodoxy in general, and yet they heaped criticism and scorn very often on the institution itself, and very often even on the leaders of those institutions.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I I mean, I, I think it's a crucial point too, because something that I took away from your book was this idea that Um, you know, the people are sort of in control of their own belief system or religion or faith or whatever you want to call it, because I think it is different things to different people um, and in different circumstances, which, of course, we have to talk about here in just a minute. Um, You know, I think something else that is really intriguing for me is because these people are taking sort of faith into their own hands, so to speak, um, you had to get into thinking about the relationship between physical place, geography, to emotional affect. Um, And in some ways, I think we can really read your ethnographic work as one that is a study of emotions as related to everyday religiosity in places that are, to use the concept um, that's present in your book, animated with prayer, right? Um, And you focus largely on these public commemorative spaces, and you you have chapters that sort of touch on spaces that are uh, cemeteries, monasteries, You even take us at the end to um, the war zone. Uh, You, of course, have a chapter on the Maidan. And then you also talk about various buildings and architecture. And, you know, you have this famous um, picture in the book that maybe many of us have seen visiting Kiev, which is, you know, freedom is our religion. Uh, That was a big banner that was on the building there for a while. And so I, I guess I want to ask you, why are these spaces that you write about, the cemeteries, the monasteries, Maidan, the buildings, why are these spaces so important for religious emotional experience?
1: Yeah, I think they create, I argue in the book that this, um, the presence of orthodoxy um, is not just uh, pervasive, but it's also effective. In other words, it does sort of emotionally tune people and it uh, it it prompts them to care about orthodoxy that um, and I use that then as a springboard to begin to argue that that's how and why religion uh, becomes so uh, volatile and so involved in politics because it really does shape certain moods and it motivates people to either support certain things or condemn certain things Um. And I think that's one of the reasons why Poroshenko himself made such a pronounced effort to uh, engage in religious affairs. But the only problem was, I think... Um, you, you see then the um, the complex and the almost counter uh, counterintuitive nature of that, precisely because people uh, want religion to be de- depoliticized because it matters, uh, but because it matters, it becomes politicized. So, of course, in spite of that achievement of creating this independent church, which I think most people applauded, they also voted him out of office, and they voted into office a man uh, who said he had no intention of really um, getting involved in religious affairs as a secular Jew. And I think most people found that to be a good thing. But what strikes me as um, not just so benign is when people begin decorating, um, they might have icons in their home which they might see as decorative objects. But those kinds of decorative objects in a certain moment can also become objects of devotion. And then when that extends further over and public buildings – I, you know, for example, I have in the book uh, photographs of uh, subway stations where you have similarly kind of icon like images that then begin to decorate public space. And I show how, even in commercial space or uh, other kinds of um, neighborhood areas, you have monuments, shrines, and the like that begin to permeate all that kind of space, which creates an atmosphere of religiosity. And I think that leads. Leads to two things that have really direct political ramifications. One, um, after, uh, after the Maidan and you know the, the clergy were very active on the Maidan, they called themselves at that time chaplains of the Maidan. They quickly then became a really a strong core of military chaplains who worked in uh, Eastern Ukraine uh, from 2014 uh, onwards. And of course, that Development of the military chaplaincy also led to a vast expansion of the chaplaincy as an institution per se. And here this relates back to the U.S. because in a great many instances, it was a lot of... Um, now institutionally connected religious people from the United States that are sharing a lot of best practices, whether they be from Protestant denominations or Catholic denominations, where there is a long uh, tradition of chaplains participating in, um, certainly in, in, in military kind of situations, but in other kinds of situations. So this atmosphere of religiosity, which exists sort of in, a, in an iconic way in Ukraine, that quickly then spilled over into the placement of clergy who are chaplains in a wide variety of public institutions, ones that we generally tend to think of as, as secular, whether we're talking about um, uh, hospitals or rehabilitation centers or border patrol or transport Transportation hubs, uh, educational institutions—it's a very long list—and that that introduction of the clergy of a variety of denominations—and that's what will get me to my second point—was fairly uncontroversial, and I think it's because it was part of um, extending really uh, and this atmosphere of religiosity, um, which uh, then uh, was already existed in a visual way and you know in public space and then became very present also in terms of public institutions all of this also and i think this is what's very distinctive about ukraine Perhaps it's in part because of the existence of the Greek Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Already there you have a degree of um, accepting of different religious traditions, and they both position themselves in many instances as national churches. But that also led the way then for... um, uh, uh, really a creation of a place for other religious traditions to also be present in public space, either through the chaplaincy or through other kinds of iconography. And here I'm thinking especially also of um, not just a wide variety of Protestant denominations, but uh, Muslims, Jews, and the like. So you have then... um, this that's why I called it an atmosphere of religiosity as opposed to an atmosphere of orthodoxy per se. It's because it triggers this kind of everyday religiosity that finds expression in very often improvised personalized um, practices that that color and permeate uh, everyday life and lived spaces, um, which is what makes it meaningful. And then, precisely because it's meaningful, then it, it becomes a political resource. And then, in certainly um, under current conditions of war, you see then the real weaponization and securitization of religion.
0: Right. Yeah. And you know, it, it was interesting reading through these chapters, and the one particularly that stood out to me was um, your, your chapter on this sort of everyday experience at cemeteries and. I say that because um I've spent a lot of time walking around cemeteries in Ukraine. I mean, for different reasons. A there are it's just some beautiful ornate monuments and tombs that are worth, you know, an artistic visit alone, um particularly in Lviv, but also in Kyiv and um you know, I I remember fondly actually last year of course being in Ukraine and I, I took a late walk over to Baikova to, you know, look at the grave of Leslie Ukrainka and the late James Mace. And you see these people cleaning the plots around the graves and keeping them very orderly. And I never thought of that as, you know, sort of me witnessing these sort of everyday moments that you write about in your book. And you know, I, th- I think this is really interesting because it got me thinking that I think really anywhere can become a space for these kinds of practices to, to form. and. I I guess what I wanted to ask you as a follow-up to that was, were there other spaces that you wanted to write about in the book that didn't make it in there? Uh, Because you talk about, of course, like very important ones like Maidan and then, of course, battlefields. And then to me, ones that would maybe be a little bit more obvious to readers, which are monasteries and some churches and stuff like that. But I got me thinking too of, um, you know, what about places like museums with icons or social clubs or now, unfortunately, I was thinking about bomb shelters. Are are new forms of, you know, everyday religiosity uh, taking place in new forms? And if so, have you have you seen where these are taking places? Um, So I guess I would just ask you that if you've seen sort of the adaptability of these uh, in action with the war and also were there other spaces that you wanted to write about?
1: Um, I think one of, one of the things that I argue in this book is that you really have, and Ukraine here is part of a far broader um, uh, pattern that we see emerging uh, in North America and elsewhere in Europe, where you have deinstitutionalized forms of um, religious practice. And cemeteries is a, a, a great illustration. People who perhaps might not care uh, uh, about um, a, a particular Institution and won't actually enter a church and would say that they are not believers, but they still uh, will go to a cemetery. And indirectly, though, very often that trades on an acceptance, for example, of an afterlife. And um, and what I argue in the book, one of the reasons why it's called the politics of belonging, is I speak about how these informal practices of everyday life create not just horizontal at a given moment links that connect people. But also when you think about um, cemeteries and commemorative spaces, they also create vertical links that connect people to ancestors and the people who have come before, but also arguably even future generations. So in other words, it creates both horizontal links that help people feel as if they belong, but also these vertical links that uh, in both instances link people to a particular place and to the people who live in those places. Um, I was especially myself interested in cemeteries because I I got interested in that quite some time ago when I started looking at um, uh, religiosity during the Soviet period. And I realized the extent to which... um, The KGB and others who were involved in monitoring any kind of overt religious practice were obliged to monitor cemeteries. Um, And I also was really taken aback by, once again, people who themselves would claim to be totally non-religious. I mean, that's why I write in the book, I I, I didn't always go to church, and I almost never mentioned the word religion. Because if you mention the word religion, people will say, oh, that's not me. Uh, I can introduce you to my great aunt or something like that. But it would be that same person who would consistently go to a cemetery to commemorate the passing of someone, whether it's at, you know, specific intervals right after they passed or years thereafter, or who would feel compelled to go to certain monuments. And you're right, there are all kinds of other commemorative uh, places uh, that I think, um, certainly museums is one, but I, I think these kinds of deinstitutionalized practices that have been around for quite some time are finding expression in many, many different ways, uh, be- precisely because they are so agile and so flexible and they trade on certain established elements of orthodoxy and that's what makes them religious, if you will, but because they are so personalized and meaningful, that's what I would say makes them sort of spiritual. And that's why you find also many people who will consider themselves, you know, spiritual, but not religious. That's very, very common in that part of the world. And I think it's these patterns of everyday life, um, the spaces in which they circulate, the things they do in those spaces uh, and what they do to mark those spaces and what they do to mark time all serve to connect them to uh, other peoples and to a and to certain places, and that's what makes them meaningful. And that's why they. Uh, I'm, I'm entirely certain that uh, you're right. Whether we speak of. Bomb shelters or um, uh, other kinds of buildings that have been damaged very often. One has cre- made, you know, exhibits or or other kinds of monuments or commemorative spaces um, out of uh, what could otherwise have been dismissed as ruins. But nonetheless, it's a testimony to a certain kind of spirit that connects a person to other people by these improvised practices.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I, there's a point too, and I, I want to sort of, when we end, I want to ask you about the elasticity of this, because I think it's a crucial point. Um, but, you know, it also, because you're talking about these spaces being able to to exist in all kinds of different ways, I'm wondering, I mean, how has the war affected this, right? Um, I have to ask if like, how's, you know, because you're writing, you know, from a time period and you know again to just reiterate um over and over to everyone who listens to this that this war has been going on for years um you know it, it didn't start in february 2022 There was a major uptick in escalation and violence and it marked the full-scale invasion but this war has been going on for a long time and um you know your book got me thinking about okay missile strikes are happening drones are flying there are mines everywhere bombs exist you can't go to some of these places to to practice or be a part of or engage in these, um, everyday sort of belief systems. Um, so has the landscape of doing this, of practicing everyday religiosity, everyday belief systems, has it changed because of the war or not? Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Um, I, I would say probably, uh, for some it has changed in terms of, um, uh, strengthening any kind of commitment to these kinds of practices. And I would suspect that for others, um, it has really eviscerated any sense of um, any kind of higher power that is at all benevolent. Um, I'm thinking of many who have said that uh, they perhaps before, they're not certain whether there's a God or not, but now they're quite certain that there's a devil. I mean, in other words, it's quite obvious that there is evil in the world, whether there are other kinds of benevolent forces out there, that uh, that's entirely unclear. So I think for some people, the um, the atrocities uh, have really shaken any kind of sense uh, of, of religiosity. And of course, many of the Subsequent institutional changes that have come about, Uh, I think that is to say, the creation of the uh, uh, Orthodox Church of Ukraine and repossession of the Kiev Pacheska Lavra. And perhaps that's just the beginning. There will be uh, uh, a, a decision to no longer renew the leases. For a variety of other religious uh, institutional religious properties that were previously with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, so we might very well be witnessing a sea change of of sorts uh, on the institutional front uh, in Ukraine once again. But I think that these, uh, for many people, these kinds of long standing. Practices that have permeated their everyday lives, um, I think they continue unabated because they really they don't need clergy. They don't need an iconostas. They don't need uh, confession or communion or any other kinds of formalized ritual um, uh, you know, authorized forms of religiosity. Um, they very often trade on the idea of sacred spaces uh, exist, they exist in nature, uh, they exist in cemeteries, They uh, and they can also be created. And so um, I I think that kind of everyday religiosity for those for whom those kinds of religious appeals might provide comfort and might serve as an effective coping mechanism uh, to deal with the stress of perhaps the drone will hit your building tonight, um, I would think those kinds of everyday practices that if people didn't... Uh, actually engage in them previously. They know something about them. Perhaps that, uh, provides some kind of, uh, of sustenance. And that is arguably maybe one of the factors that we can use to, uh, explain what I think has to be described as the extraordinary resilience of the Ukrainian people under this uh, uh, onslaught of war. And I think it perhaps can also begin to explain why we see this tremendous mass mobilization, everything from, you know, Older women throwing their jars of pickles at drones to, you know, children challenging people to checkers and then donating the money that they can raise from that. You know, everyone from the young to the elderly uh, trying to do their part in some way to um, uh, sustain Uh, the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian forces. And I think it's that kind of integration, those everyday practices that begin to uh, explain how and why that's possible. And I think uh, for somebody like Vladimir Putin, it's precisely that kind of um, resolve and resilience, and the extent to which that permeated the everyday lives of Ukrainians, that that's precisely what he massively underestimated. And I would say anybody else who thought that this war would would have been ended in 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 several days.
0: Right, I, I totally agree, and I mean I think it's something that a lot of the world at first um, maybe wasn't attuned to was the resolve and the elasticity of the Ukrainian people um, and their ability to adapt on a whim. Um, It's no surprise to, I think, a lot of us who have worked and studied Ukraine for a long time that um, they will survive and thrive and never underestimate a baba with a jar of pickles ready to take down your drone, right? Um, This is the Ukrainian way. So I I totally agree with that. Um, I wanna switch gears for a second and actually um, ask you about doing sort of ethnography. Uh, I'm sort of always interested to talk to researchers about how they go about their their research and how they observe. And I'm particularly interested to talk to anthropologists because you you do so much of this. And, you know, as a historian, I do some of this, but I often sit in archives and I know you sit in archives, too, sometimes. But I, I guess I just would like to know what it was like to go on these sort of let me call it your ethnographic pilgrimage Uh, to these religious sites. And I, I think, you know, you do this, you have this great sort of anecdote in there where you're actually in Russia, and it's very cold out, and you wanted to warm up your feet. And so you find yourself ducking into a church to warm up, and you talk about sort of the atmosphere and the lights, and you could hear the choir, which was not visible. So it gives it sort of this haunting presence, and there's incense burning, and people saying prayers and things like that. And I think many of us can sort of relate to that description to anyone who's been in these sort of Orthodox churches. Um, but what was it like to go to these different sites, to the Lavras, you go to the monasteries, um, you travel by bus for this sort of vacation to one of the monasteries for a multi-day adventure. And, um, although you don't get into the the very cold water with everyone else, you observe them doing these sort of everyday practices, uh, I just, I, I guess it would be interested to hear what was it like to do that kind of work and how were people, um, how did they sort of relate to you being there, observing them doing these everyday practices?
1: Yeah. I realized that I sort of fell into this because I was I, I was basically interested in what is the what's really meaningful to people. What what do they feel to be a moral obligation? Something that is is a commitment they make that is totally non negotiable. What you know in their heart of hearts, what really matters to them, and that's sort of uh, you know how I fell into looking at religion, Um, and I think one of the reasons why I gravitated towards the just orthodox is because. I'm not a particularly religious person myself and I'm not Orthodox and I'm not Greek Catholic. Uh, and so on one level, um, it's harder doing research on religion because I knew, I knew I couldn't, uh, I never wanted to present myself as someone who was religious and I, um, and I never wanted to do things that um, I wouldn't ordinarily do. In other words, I didn't want to misrepresent myself, but of course with the just Orthodox, I mean, these are people who in many respects um, they had attitudes uh, like my own towards institutional religion and towards, Towards religiosity and um, uh, and so uh, I and I think in some ways you know the the anecdote that you mentioned that was when I was an undergraduate so it was really the first time that I was actually ever in an, in an Orthodox Church so it was really quite an eye-popping experience for me and also it was during the Soviet period so one didn't expect to see you know churches full of very pious uh, people actively practicing. Um, but many of the, um, many of the just Orthodox that I looked at themselves also really, uh, they, many uh, do not know uh, doctrine. They don't know anything about the liturgy. Um, and they don't formally practice. I mean, in other words, they don't, uh, do thing. Uh, you know, even something as what to North Americans seems basic, like communion, they don't partake in communion and, and, and the like. Um, and i was interested in those in those people why and how do they still feel orthodox and i realized there were these a wide roster of possible practices that were out there like these weekend pilgrimages that form sort of temporary communities that where many people are like that you don't have to be ashamed that you uh, don't know the first, you don't know how to behave or you don't know what to wear or you don't know what this is all about because there's other there's other people there who are just like that and they're quite happy to explain it But the main thing is that that they're there and they continue to do this. And um, that's just one example. But there's many other ways in which um, they uh, will travel to certain places that are deemed sacred places. And they go there because they're they're deemed sacred and meaningful. But it's not purely in a religious way in an institutionalized religious sense, even if part of the demarcation that makes those places sacred or what makes them special um, is because the church or certain um, uh, elders of the church or what have you have deemed them uh, sacred. So it's it indirectly, all of these forms of practice sort of tie people to institutional churches, but it also allows them to remain quite distant. And it allows people to remain just Orthodox. In other words, to go to um, a a monastery that's perhaps with the uh, Moscow Patriarchate, even if they don't care. I mean, in other words, they don't They're not looking to make any kind of statement about an allegiance to the Moscow Patriarchate or to Russia or to Russian Orthodoxy or anything of that nature. Um, uh, It allows them to be sort of free agents, if you will. And I think I wanted to focus on this group of people because when you look at a lot of statistical analysis, uh, up until Russian forces were amassed on the... Uh, Ukrainian border in late 2021. Up until that point, the just Orthodox were the largest group of people who claimed a religious uh, affiliation, but they claimed it as Prosto just Orthodox. And so, in looking at other kinds of political or or, uh, sociological or other kinds of statistics, you know, they would say, well, there's X percentage for the Kiev Patriarchate, X percentage for the Moscow Patriarchate. but those percentages would never add up, you know, even if they gave all the Greek Catholics and there was always some giant block that was missing that was entirely unaccounted for. And I heard people saying things like, oh, that's because Ukrainians are they're undecided. They haven't yet chosen or they are not used to choosing because that's not a traditional pattern in Orthodox countries. Uh, but I knew that these people were uh they had made a decision. They were choosing all right. They were just choosing once again on their own terms to remain just Orthodox and not um and not tied to a particular denomination and not tied to a particular political project. And it, it struck me that there was quite a bit of integrity in that.
0: Yeah, certainly. And I, I think you proved that throughout your book quite well um the integrity and you know um, the way that people go about this for themselves but also for others there's a communal aspect and a respectful aspect to all of this so i want to ask you a concluding question now and it's it's one that's sort of broad um but for me this book not only opened my eyes about certain practices and belief systems in ukraine and also challenged how I felt when I walk into churches there, you know, uh, as someone who was also not religious, um, I had, I guess, certain expectations for when I when I go to these places, what's happening. But your book really challenged my own views of what is happening. Um, and it's it's made me sort of, I think, stop and realize that uh, there's a lot going on that I, I didn't understand right away. So I, I want to first just start by thanking you for that, because I think anyone who reads this book will learn a lot about what's going on religiously and non-religiously in Ukraine. Um But for this concluding question, I I want to return back to what I promised I would ask you about, which is this this concept of elasticity that you talk about in your conclusion. And you say that um, there's an elasticity of citizenship with regard to religious affiliation, which you talk about throughout your book. Ukrainians are very tolerant in in many forms. But this this elasticity contributes to religious tolerance and helps to create sacred spaces outside of formal institutions, again, which you've talked about at length. So as someone who has been working on Ukraine for many years now myself, um, I take this point about being flexible really seriously. And I actually think that the adaptability of Ukrainians is in many ways one of their superpowers, um, one of their many superpowers. And we have seen this time and time again during the full-scale war and even before. So as we head out, I just wanna ask you, what lessons about resilience, life, and even belief can we take away from your study of everyday religiosity and those practices in Ukraine?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think, um, perhaps the best, uh, perhaps the best lesson is that, um, to really, um, think, Sharply about many of the categories that we use, um, b- given this elasticity and adaptability and agility, um, it's important to note um, when uh, when categories can help us see things, but when categories can also mislead by perpetuating assumptions that perhaps are not actually grounded in in actual practice, or. Um, uh, that can prevent us sometimes from seeing changes as they're occurring. In other words, I think once you begin to think, see the kinds of agility within this sphere of everyday religiosity, of course you'll see it as well too in the sphere of rel- uh, of language, for example, um, where people... Um, you know switch languages and which phrases and and you you see this with all the memes that are are making word plays with uh trading on but they trade on an assumption of almost you know 100% fluent knowledge of both Ukrainian and Russian and so they that allows them to both uh make humor and also to um, uh, subvert certain forms of power um, and create others that sort of assert their own forms of empowerment. In short, I think once you begin to recognize um, that there is um, a remarkable degree of agency among individuals, and once you once you take it's it's very messy, and it takes time to do this kind this kind of ethnographic research on the ground to really appreciate the the kind of um, the fuzziness and the way and w- but you see the way in which these uh, uh, these practices begin to place into question any kind of tight conceptualization of certain categories, whether it's what religion is per se. I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a paradox that here I wrote a book about everyday religiosity. And I said, when I did my research, I almost never mentioned the word religion um, because it shut down the conversation. So if you go to other um, categories, such as faith. Then everything opens up again, and if you look at, you can asking someone whether they're a, a believer or not. These are that's a, a category that Ukrainians very often use themselves, but um, you don't find. Uh, too many people that perhaps won't believe in miracles or in the afterlife or in all kinds of other uh, concepts. And once you begin to think more broadly uh, this in this way, you start to understand why, of course, um, at this juncture, sort of faced with this kind of violence, you do have the creation of Church of Ukraine and why you do have, why, why it becomes sort of um, both a political tool that's used to uh, oust the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church from the Moscow Patriarchate from certain religious sites, but also how and why that potentially uh, uh, could become problematic. And um, the, all of this means something, but, uh, but it's, it's very often difficult to predict exactly what it will mean precisely because it's so adapted to the conditions at hand. And it is so um, familiar and uh, and heartfelt to so many people. So these forms of everyday religiosity take religion and bring it into people's everyday lives, bring it into their sense of identity but also then it brings it uh, front and center into the political sphere. And even now under conditions of war, it makes a monastery or um, uh, other religious properties, and by extension then clergy and the leaders of those properties, it makes them uh, very, very prominent political actors. They are even then can be weaponized and used to securitize and fortify Ukrainian sovereignty that uh, that's not a, um, I think that's an unusual situation. And I think when, at the end of the day, it goes back to the fact that there is this effective atmosphere of religiosity that makes religiosity uh, so meaningful to people in their everyday lives, that all of those other things are possible.
0: Yeah, and uh, that's a great answer and a great way to conclude our, our interview today. I've been speaking with Dr. Katherine Wanner, about her new book from Cornell Press, published in 2022, Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine. Kathy, thanks so much for joining me here today.
1: Thank you very much. It was a delight to be here.